you know, my mentor said it to me one way. When he started out, his only focus was how do I get one deal per day? That's it. And if he didn't get a deal on Monday, he'd go back and try to get two on Tuesday. So that's my challenge for everyone out there. If you're a pure wholesaler where you buy or sell before you buy, success for you is buying a home and selling a home. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Lee Carney, a real estate investor based out of Florida who has bought and sold over 7,000 properties since 2004. In this episode, we'll be talking about creating systems on how to do a massive amount of deals and how to scale your operations. We'll be talking about leveraging market cycles as well as what you should be doing in this economy. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years, and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, Download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Lee, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. My name is Lee Carney. I'm based out of Tampa, Florida. I've been doing real estate for 16 years. At this point, I currently run Spin Companies, which is a collection of real estate companies. We've bought and sold over 7,500 homes, over half a billion dollars with that company currently CEO of realadvisors.com, which is where we teach people how to do real estate all the way from newbies to commercial. So that's really a very rewarding position there. For five years, I've been involved in the cannabis space. It took us a while to get licensed, but now we're purchasing our second company in Oklahoma. So we're really expanding in Oklahoma and we look to be getting a Florida license later this year. So the cannabis space is probably the most exciting thing I do because it's a passion business for me. And you know, a lot of people go through this choice. Well, do I do something I love and I'm good at? Do I, or is it something I'm good at or is I'm passionate? And with cannabis, I get to do both. So I'm super excited about that space. But I also love real estate because it's made me all the money in my career. It's allowed me these other opportunities. And I think real estate's a great way to generate cash. It's a great way to park your cash and passive investments. And it's a great way to keep the government away from it. So when you look at the money game of making money, putting it to passive and keeping the government, real estate actually checks all three boxes. And it's very rare to find one vehicle that can do that. That's really exciting. Can you talk about your journey through real estate, how you got started and how you became successful in the field? Man, well, I, I would say success early on for me started by asking questions. So 2003, I flipped the property by accident. What I mean by that, I bought it, got broken into, put it back in the market and sold it, made 30 grand. In 2003, that was more money than I was making in my job. So for me in Ireland, the light bulb went off. I decided I want to move back to the States. I'd lived in the States for about six years, decided to go back to Ireland, hated it, moved back to the States. And one of the first things I did was start asking a lot of questions, found a guy at church who actually was a, a rehabber, and I followed him around, I added value, helped him work, buy materials, work in his houses. I learned really quickly, just getting a coach early on was huge because he told me where to buy what to buy, what price point to buy, how to rehab it, how not to spend too much money. 
So lessons where people learn this after losing a bunch of money, I got the formula right out of the gate. Now, I was so scared to veer from that. But yeah, he basically gave me that rubber stamp formula. And it took me about three months to find my first house. But I made money because I bought at the right price. I spent the right amount of money. Where a lot of people go wrong is they don't buy right and they spend too much or they take too long. And so flipping is really key because you got to buy it right. You got to not spend too much money. You got to not go too long, especially if you got leverage where the cost of capital is going to exceed market appreciation, which means the clock's running against you. So for me, it was really nice having a coach. Same thing, bought a similar house in San Bernardino, California, decided to move back to Florida, made first couple of mistakes, had a friend rehab it, don't do it, tried to remote it, remotely rehab it, don't do it. So that house was a cluster. It took six, seven months to rehab it, stumble through it. Instead of making 30, 35 grand like I did my first real flip, I think I made about 12 grand, but I snuck out the back door. California real estate started to dip after that. And California actually experienced this. Now that I look back, the softening of the market happened at least a year before Florida. So I'm kind of watching what's happening in California because if it's indicative of what happened last time, California being a trustee state, stuff's going to fall quicker because that, that process of taking back a home is a lot quicker. People play games in Florida and the foreclosure process, you can drag it out for years. So I'm definitely in a watch and wait mode while still wholesaling light rehabs and just seeing what's going on. So 2005, moved back to Florida and started buying at the courthouse steps. Again, asked a bunch of questions, found out my friend's father was buying foreclosures. I was asking, what are the courthouse steps? I mean, all these questions that people might think are dumb, but I'm really attentive to the newbie because I was a newbie. I didn't go to a course. I didn't have a you know professional training. I just asked a bunch of questions and found people who were doing it and didn't have a mentor per se, but I definitely found a lot of people. I learned by doing. Now, my first mentor I did get later in 2005, he lent me money and we became friends, borrowed more money, did some joint ventures. So that guy would now be my largest mentor, several hundred million dollar net worth, really smart guy who's taught me what to do, what not to do. One of my other lenders actually became one of my mentors too. So the two biggest mentors in my life were real estate investors turned lenders turned entrepreneurs. And now they run several businesses in different industries, super smart guys. So what I would say to everyone out there, there's no dumb question and get a mentor who knows what they're doing. Someone who who's gone where you want to go. They already have the formula, the roadmap to get there. I think a lot of people you know, try to find a mentor that's going to teach them all areas of life. And for me personally, I found I've got different mentors for different areas of my life. There's people that have one area of their life perfected, but me, like everybody else I've seen, again, this is my personal experience. No one's good at everything. There's people that really excel at one thing and I want them to be my mentor in that one thing. When you were finding your mentor, did you guys have some kind of arrangement with each other? For example, like if we do a deal together, I'm going to give you 50% or I'm going to pay you for mentorship? That's a good question. I found my mentors by doing deals with them. So I brought value to them. We made money together. And so in the case, it was typically I'd bring the deal, I'd be the operator, and they would make money either A, as a JV partner or as a lender. And I found with someone of high net worth, where they just got to click a button to work with you, it's those conversations while you're doing deals. That's where you get those nuggets. And that was a really effective way for me to learn. And just seeing how someone who was a couple zeros ahead of me at one point was how they did business, how they woke up in the morning, how they structured their day, what they focused on. And so, you know, for me personally, that's how I learned. I was never big on reading books many years ago. I read more books now because Audible, with newer technology, I'm able to 
kind of blast through a book in a setting that, that feels comfortable for me. But I never really liked the idea of sitting down and reading a business book. So a lot of my learning is just by doing deals with my mentors. And I made a lot of mistakes early on, too, because I bought the courthouse steps, the front line of investing, didn't understand title and made every mistake under the sun, bought the wrong house, bought a house with liens, had to walk away from deposits, had to walk away from property. So I've seen it all. What were some of those things that you learned from your mentors? And for example, what are some of the good morning habits that you saw from mentors that you incorporate in your own daily life? Interesting you mentioned that. One of my mentors has a very strict morning habit. The other one just gets up whenever he wants, but he has, you know, what they refer to as FU money, right? You know, it's just so much money where he doesn't have to. So I think at one point he actually was opposite schedule. He'd get up late, but work till two in the morning. But what I did see with both of them is work ethic. And so I found that the journey from unsuccessful to successful or very wealthy requires determination and hard work. And for me personally, that's what I've seen with people who have mentored me. And I've seen for most people, they didn't have a free lunch. I think there's some exceptions with today's technology. You got young kids that just come out with a great app or great technology and they can skip the learning curve. They get lucky. The company goes public and they're worth billions of dollars overnight. You know, you've even someone, you know, people like the dog, the Kardashians, right? You, I look at Kylie Jenner as a good businesswoman. You know, she used her following to sell products and really monetize that. And a billionaire at her age, I respect that, you know, and whether you like them or don't like them, I've seen that that learning curve with people up and coming now in business, they can speed that up. They can do it in years instead of decades. You know, my mentors built it by a lot of hard work and dedication over decades. So I think the good news for people who want to go from zero to billionaire, zero to million, zero to 10 million, decamillionaire, you can definitely do it a lot quicker because there's a lot more information out there. By harnessing technology, whether it's real estate or any other industry, it's a lot easier to do make a scale business. You know, when I was starting out, I had to buy at the courthouse steps, which means me had to go to the courthouse steps physically bid on a property, bring physical checks to fund it. Now we can bid statewide simultaneously, 20-something auctions at the same time, electronically fund everything. And that just wasn't possible 15 years ago when I started. I actually think the game is a lot easier now, especially in real estate. People talk about virtually wholesaling, micro-flipping. You know, there's all sorts of different names. You can basically, if you're a wholesaler, you can buy and sell anywhere because you can access the information publicly. You can send electronic contracts you can do that whole business virtually, which we've done. So when people talked about COVID-19 and coming out with some virtual program, like we've been doing this for years. We figured out how to harness technology many, many years ago. We're constantly trying to make things easier, do things remotely. Haven't gone to a title company in 10 years. Have never got a check. It's always been wires, always been remote closings. So there's many things that we figured out as a company made sense to do long before it became popular with COVID. Yeah. And you can always hire people to do those tasks for you. They don't even have to be here or local to where you're at. Absolutely. And that's the thing. If you, Whether someone on your team is working at home 10 miles away or 1,000 miles away, if they're remote, they're remote. You just got to figure out if there's paperwork involved, printing, scanning. I mean, there's easy solutions for all this stuff. And especially now with virtual calls and Zoom calls and interviews like we're doing right now, you can replicate that experience very, very easy, which means you can chase the best talent on your team worldwide. So that actually opens up a worldwide audience for us to hire, which I think is cool because it means you can hire the best of the best. You know, my team right now is domestic, Philippines, India, Hawaii, and there's probably other places in the world I don't even know of. 
in one of our other businesses, but that's at a minimum on a day-to-day basis who I deal with. Actually, sorry, Russia is another one too. Our developer now is out of Russia. Nice. Worldwide enterprise. Absolutely. That doesn't mean you're big, just means you're smart because you're finding that talent. You're not restricting it geographically. You're not forcing people to go to an office. And I think that that's opened a lot of people's eyes. What's happening now, they've realized, oh, I don't need an office. Oh, I don't need people to come to that office. I can hire great talent and great people and build a great culture with the best of the best, no matter where they are. Exactly. And you were mentioning that your mentors say, you know, you saw that your mentors were successful because of hard work. And because right now everything is a lot easier, what do you think hard work looks like now in the real estate field? Well, it's funny you say that. So the most successful mentor I know says work smarter, not harder. And that's what he says to me every single time. So when I saw him work hard, I saw him go pedal to the metal and still do on things that matter. You know, working on a $10 million idea or $100 million idea instead of wasting time, you know, checking up on a report. And so I found that both of them are very, very smart where they send their time because they look at their time as requiring an ROI. A lot of people look at parting with money as being the only thing they require an ROI. But the smartest people in my world value their their time the same way they do writing a check. So if they're writing a check for $10,000 or if they value their time at $10,000 an hour, then they're not going to waste their time or their money because they value them both the same. In fact, they value their time more than they value money, which is why they try to focus on high output ideas. So things that are going to have a not only a big output, but a big residual output. So they'll build a platform that will produce residual. They'll focus on big deals and ignore small deals. So it's not only just hard work, it's real focus on the right things that you should be doing in a day versus the wrong things you should not be doing. For a new investor who probably doesn't have the ability to do $100 million deals, what are like your suggestions on what they should be doing on like a day-to-day basis? It's a great question. Deals. You should be focused on deals. You know, my mentor said it to me one way. When he started out, his only focus was, how do I get one deal per day? That's it. And if he didn't get a deal on Monday, he'd go back and try to get two on Tuesday. So that's my challenge for everyone out there. If you're a pure wholesaler where you buy or sell before you buy, success for you is buying a home and selling a home. Maybe it's once a week starting out. But but I think that setting that bar, doing a deal a day, if you take the work day, you know, typically 20 days per week or per month, that's a good goal, right? You get from four deals a month, which would be one per week, to 20 deals a month, which is, you know, five per week, which is a deal a day. And that's how he described it to me because I said, what got you out of bed? The thing that would swing the needle is getting a deal a day. So for him, he focused on that and that's where he set the bar. And a lot of people focus on, they got maybe got a, a cool Podio CRM, or maybe their Google Sheet looks pretty. Maybe they bought it or rented a kick-ass office that looks great, right? All modern colors, cool furniture. They got a great virtual setup. That's great. But if you don't have deals, you don't have revenue. So I think that people sometimes focus on the wrong things. So my encouragement to everyone out there, if you're starting out, whether it's your first deal, your 50th deal, your 500th deal, if you don't have deals and you're a wholesaler, you don't have incoming revenue. Now, if you're a rehabber or if you take down properties, you need two things, deals and money, right? Because there's no point having deals if, if you don't have any money. There's no point having money if you don't have any deals. So your focus should be deals and money. And I think for people who really want to excel in real estate, it's not possible to do that without money. You're going to be very transactional in nature, which means you trade your time for money. You're never going to get off the hamster wheel unless you bring in capital into your business where you can take down properties 
get increased profits. So you don't have to double close them in some cases, or you can take them down as rentals and then hold them for five or 10 years and really get that true IRR from the property rather than just getting transactional high tax income. Right. Eventually you want to move into the buy and hold strategy versus just flipping or wholesaling all the time. It is a good question, but I think there's a lot of misinformation out on that. You know, everyone buys at wholesale, right? We'll assume that we're all good investors and we buy at 70% or less. So, so let's start with that premise. If you buy at 70% of the market when it's at its peak, or you buy at 70% of the market when it's at its lowest point, I would argue the time to build a rental portfolio is at the bottom of the market because then you see appreciation, you're going to see rent increase, you see everything on an upward trend. The problem with buying at the peak of the market, what you pro forma today could end up with an upside down balance sheet two, three years from now, negative cash flow, because what I've seen is price points come down, rents go down. And I think that May, June, July at the time of this recording are going to be key because we're going to truly see who's actually going to pay rent in May. For me, if I was a large landlord, which we owned over 300 doors two years ago, I'd be scared today. I would be scared today on what my actual rent collection is for May. A lot of people already had April's rent saved up in March, but I think the chickens are really going to come home to roost in May when people now have gone for a period without a job, with money going out one way and no money coming in to see who actually pays or not. So I think we're about to understand the new rental norm six months, 12 months from now. We're going to understand the new real estate pricing norm because the forbearances are over. The free lunch is over. People have to start actually paying. If they don't pay and they're a trustee state, they, they're going to default and their property is going to be gone in 90 days. If they're in a judicial state like Florida, it's going to be several months or even several years, but that whole process is going to start. So I personally think we were already at the peak of the market. I've been teaching this now for years, and I can show you graphs right now. If you want to just Zillow, do Tampa market. You Google Las Vegas market. You Google Orlando market, Zillow. Just look at a five, 10-year chart on this. You'll see a peak. You'll actually see a peak. You'll see a drop. If you go back to pre-2005, you'll see the run-up. You'll see the drop-off. Then you'll see the takeoff from about 2011, 2012, depending what market. And now what you'll notice is a shake in that graph the last few months, even before COVID, because what happened was they kept lowering the rates, right? Because there's no more room for price appreciation. We're at the top of affordability. You're in the Bay Area, same way. The numbers just don't make sense. The average person doesn't know how to even enter the market. Just be basically people trading up or high net worth people moving into the market. So it's interesting to see where things are going to go, but the fundamentals seem to indicate that prices are going to reset. Now, I think COVID has just put some gasoline in the fire of what was already in place. But my mentors are telling me it's a good time to watch and wait. It's a good time to trade assets, not a good time to own, better time to control assets if you can, rather than owning you know, options and lower deposits and buying time to see where the pricing is going to shake out. So I think wholesaling is a great place to be right now because you're essentially day trading real estate. Now, prices don't move in a day. Unlike the stock market that will drop 10% in a day, that doesn't happen. That does not happen with real estate. Real estate moves in quarters. And you can see trend. You can see plenty of warning signs. Like what's happening today is sending warning signs. People aren't paying their mortgages. People are slowing down and paying rent. People have lost their jobs. So all the fundamentals have gone like through the floor, which means we should be looking ahead going investors going, well, what does this all mean? If all the, the metrics are bad and cars you know, are not being sold and you got you know, the food industry where that supply chain is completely messed up, which is most industries and most supply chains, we got to look forward and going, okay, the market's giving us plenty of notice. So we probably shouldn't try to fight the market. 
we should tailor a strategy around that. Now, the big strategy, just like it was in 2008, line up capital, get ready to pounce on deals, you know, mitigate risk today, day trade, buy conservatively, make sure you don't take on a long project with a long revenue cycle, like a two-year development or three-year development deal, especially if you're paying top dollar for land. That's a lot of times what screws up people on these development costs, because what happens is the resale price go down, the land cost was high, which means you can't make sense of that project. So a lot of people in my world are dumping large, large land holdings, speculative projects, and even if they're getting, we'll call it 80 cents on the dollar today, it's better than 10 cents on the dollar if things completely crumble. So, you know, speculative land is a risky spot for most people shouldn't be jumping in on that, especially if they're paying market price. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think now's a good time to find capital. If you don't have it, then start finding people who do have it mm-hmm. and at least keep putting your feelers out there so that when deals do come, you are like the one that's known for the one who's still buying deals, even though it's you know scary in Corona season. And actually on that note, on a positive note, the herd's thinning, which means the non-professionals are leaving the market. The people that don't have a good skill set in acquisitions are leaving, which means people that understand that we're dealing with people. When you deal directly with sellers and that's your business model, it's an acquisitions game. So you got less competition, less people competing with the same seller. You can get better pricing, which means you can pass along better pricing. That's all we have to do. We just got to get a better deal today than we did a month ago. And that's achieved through better lists, better lists, better negotiation, finding the right seller with more equity and more motivation. So that's it. It's just scrub your list a little bit better. Don't be going after everyone. Don't be throwing mud against the wall. Focus on acquisitions. That's the key, whether you're a wholesaler or a flipper. If you've got acquisitions dialed in, you've got options. If you're not focused on acquisition, you're trying to get a so-so deal right at the purchase stage, you're going to be really struggling because if your rehab goes too high, you lose money. Your rehab goes too long, you lose money. You don't sell it for what you thought you were going to sell it for, you lose money. I mean, we're, we're just building in bigger spreads on our underwriting. So we're buying better. We're proforming better deals with lower comps, higher rehab, making sure we build in risk. And so I'm, I'm very comfortable because I know that real estate doesn't move in days. It's not the stock market. It gives us a lot of notice. And because I recognize things, like Florida for sure, things are going to be sliding the other way. I'm just making sure to trade as we go down and making sure I'm always buying right. And I'm not holding long. Are you seeing the Tampa market go down right now? I'm seeing that buyers want better deals today. That's what I'm seeing today, but I'm not seeing a slowdown. As long as your pricing's right now throughout the country, yeah, I'm seeing some slowdown. So states where there's bigger restrictions, yeah, we're having problems. Higher price points, yes, I'm seeing a slowdown there. But if you buy stuff right, your basis is low enough where you can sell it at a deal. See, the game yesterday, when I say yesterday, we'll say a month, six weeks ago, was buying an okay deal and selling at premium, whether it was wholesale or retail. Now you got to buy below wholesale and sell either at or slightly below wholesale to, to move it today, which means you've just got to focus on acquisitions. The companies in our space that are not focused on acquisitions are going to be wiped out. The ones that have already pivoted and will continue to stay highly focused on acquisitions as their core business, which means we understand that we chase sellers and not houses, right? And then if you recognize that, the house becomes a widget, the seller becomes your customer, which means you understand how to chase sellers. You can chase the right kind of sellers, have the right conversations, which in turn means you buy the right kind of houses at the right price. But we're not buying houses. We're not real estate investors. We're a sales organization that chases distressed sellers. That's actually our business. 
Yeah. You know, you guys probably do the most volume of anyone I've had on my show to date. You do about 30 to 50 flips per month, which is a lot. Do you want to talk about how you are going about acquiring so many deals and maybe some of the strategies that we can talk about? It's impossible to do unless you've got systems and processes, the right people and the right tools. Everything has to have a system. It's got to be a production line. If you don't have a production line and have an expert at each point of the production line, you can't do that kind of volume. But if you wind it back 10, 11 years ago, it was me and one assistant. We were able to flip eight, 10 deals. I found that's about where you can max out with no systems and processes because there's only enough time of the day to chase sellers. There's only enough time to sign contracts. There's only enough time to focus on dispo and sign those contracts and go to closings and get wires and do all the administrative paperwork. So I found that my wholesale business topped out at that 800 to a million dollars. And I couldn't, I couldn't break through that until I started focusing on systems, writing down SOPs, hiring better people that could manage their part of the process from start to finish. I was at a ceiling and most people are going to find themselves at that ceiling for the reasons I just mentioned. Yeah. Do you want to briefly go over what each of those roadblocks are kind of like a high level view? Sure. The first roadblock is that you got to take the non-revenue producing stuff off your plate. So if you're just a one-person operator, the first thing you need to do is take administrative or non-revenue producing things off your plate. You know, scanning contracts, following up with people, you know, stuff that has nothing to do with business. You know, if you're trying to run your errands during the workday, that's time you're spending on non-real estate, non-revenue producing. So I, I made sure my first hire with my assistant, this has been the case for 16 years, They've always taken all that administrative, non-revenue producing things off my plate. Yeah. There's an easy way to do that, by the way. Sure. Write down everything you do for a week and then consolidate that into an average day and then mark two things beside it. Number one, a dollar sign. A dollar sign is if it makes money, no dollar sign if it doesn't make money. Then a happy face and a sad face. Your first filter is going to be all stuff that doesn't make money. So stuff that the money goes at the top Stuff with no money goes at the bottom and your assistant wants to know what's my job description or if you're using a recruiter, there's your job. It's all of this because none of this stuff actually directly makes money. But by allowing your time to be freed up, now you can expand, you can do more deals and more tasks that make money. And you said that you are out there chasing sellers who want to sell their property, right? You're not really interested in buying the real estate. And I think that really comes down to your list in the first place. Correct. Like if you have a bad list, then you're going to be promoting to everyone in the phone book. And that's not very effective. Sure. Your connect rate might be high, but your conversion rate is going to be low because you're having conversations with people. So people point to the wrong metrics sometimes. Well, you know, we talk to 20% of our leads. So they kind of point to a high connect rate. And so our cost per lead is $10. You know, I'm just using, throwing out numbers. That's great if your cost per lead, I want to know my cost per converted lead, which means I want to know how many of those conversations converted to a deal and how much money did that deal make? Because that first number that people like to brag about is a useless number. I would rather have a thousand dollars cost per lead and convert a hundred percent than have a $10 cost per lead and convert 1% because I'm doing a whole bunch more work. I would rather focus on quality, not quantity, which goes back to exactly what you said about focusing on the quality of your list instead of just throwing mud against the wall, which has worked, by the way. In an appreciating market, the reason it works is because an okay deal can make you money. It doesn't have to be a great deal. It just has to be an okay deal because there's a scarcity of property. So supply is low, demand is high, which means you can essentially use an okay deal as a vehicle to collect an assignment fee. 
That doesn't happen when the market flattens out or is declining. You got to get a really, really good deal and sell it as a good deal. Everything has to be a deal. And that means pass through the supply chain. Yeah. And what are some of the properties of a distressed seller that you look for in the list? And what tools are you using to get the list in the first place? Sure. There's two ways you can pull lists. First of all, you can buy them or you can make them. So you got to pick your poison on that. You've got to have some sort of technical expertise if you want to scrape them. In simple terms, if the information's on a website, you can scrape it. So what we do is find the places that have our info when we're scraping them. And then we hire developers to scrape the information, essentially put it into an Excel sheet. The other way to do it is just buy a list. But regardless of whether you scrape the information or you buy it, your first job is to scrub out what you don't want. The reason being, as early in the process as possible, I only want to spend marketing dollars. And marketing dollars include skip tracing, cold calling, texting, whatever other form you contact them. As early as I can weed someone out in the process, it means I'm only spending marketing dollars on the people I do want. So we take, whether we buy a list or scrape a list, we always want to apply rules. You know, some low-hanging fruit, owner-occupants, I don't want them on my list for me unless they're distressed. So if they're not distressed and owner-occupant, they're gone. If they're owner-occupant but distressed, they'll stay on there. But Then I do a second scrub based on equity because I only want to talk to homeowners that are distressed and have lots of equity. You know, I want my competition to chase the people with little or no equity, and I want to chase high equity, which means my team is focused on big deals. My competition is focused on small deals. And I want to feed them breadcrumbs and have them focus on the small deals so I can put a lot of effort into closing big deals. So that would be one delineation. Now, you take a non-distressed list. For me, they've got to own it for a while. They've got to have equity. Typically, out of town is a great list. Probate's a good list. So if you got someone out of town with equity and someone died, now you got someone who's basically disinterested and disconnected from the property and there's equity, which means it's a win-win-win. You know, foreclosures, another form of distress, because that puts a time limit on their problem, right? So now it puts an end date where they can either do something and get nothing in some cases, or they can, you know, do something and get money. Any kind of a code enforcement issue with a daily fine, because that's a daily reminder to them, you need to sort out this problem. So I like to look for distress. I also want to look for equity. I don't think today it makes sense to market to people that don't have distress. For me personally, we only want to go after people that have some sort of distress or multiple forms of distress and have lots of equity. The days of just dialing everybody in the phone book, for me personally, I think you're going to spend your marketing, your cost per converted lead is going to go through the roof if that's the approach. Will you close deals? Yes. At some point, you're going to find a seller that's going to sell you at the right price. But if you're having a sell it cheaper, it means your margins are going to be compressed and your conversion rate's definitely going to be lower when people are not distressed, don't want to leave their house right now, don't think they have anywhere to move to. It's just going to be a fruitless exercise. So just targeting everybody, your conversion today will be very, very low, which is why people are scared to spend marketing dollars because the approach for a lot of wholesalers and a lot of investors that deal directly with sellers was just dump all the numbers in the dollar and eventually we'll get a deal, right? It's just a numbers game. Why? And I hear the wrong metrics. I, mean, I talked about the cost per lead as being a wrong metric. The other lead, well, I dialed 100,000 people this week. That's not impressive to me. I want to know how many deals you got, how much money or how much potential profit you lined up that week. That number is way more sexy to me than the amount of people you dialed. Because now you're just pointing to work. I'm pointing to effectiveness. Right. And are those features all available for you from the website you're scraping from? For example, like how do you know if someone's distressed or not? That's a good question. So 
I gave a couple examples. I mean, the clerk, you, you scrape people who have died. Then you see if they own something. So for me, the list of people who have died don't tell me anything. But if I hire VAs to then figure out what they owned and then figure out if it's leveraged, I can figure out equity and then figure out that leverage is in foreclosure. Now I can figure out who died, what they owned, how much equity they had, and if they're distressed or not, or if this code leans on it. So that's where you got to take a list and layer it with other forms of distress or look for distress. You can be really old school at this. Go down to your local municipality, get the water shutoff list. It's all public record. So if you're starting out, you got no money, just go down to your local municipality. So I'd like a list of everybody with their water shutoff. You don't have to drive properties. You just engage. You got a list. You just got to find those people now because if someone has their water shut off, they're typically not living in the property. There's so many ways if you really think about how to define distressed properties. Code liens is another one. We talked about divorce. We talked about death. We talked about non-owner occupant. You've got to really think about who's going to be less connected. The person who's going to be most connected with their property is the person who bought it to live in it. Typically, that's going to be your person with the highest emotional attachment. So unless you got a really good offer to pry them away from their house or they've got a clock ticking against them where they know they're going to lose that home, the offer of money is not that exciting. You've got to have some other tool in your tool belt. You know, for us, when we're taking down houses, we offer stuff like 90 days free to stay right now because we do have capital behind us. That's a good value add. So right out of the gate with an owner occupant, we offer them 90 days. That's huge because now it's separated from competition and we give them cash today. So cash today, move tomorrow. That's an exciting offer because with everything going on, the value of cash has gone up and the value of being of knowing they have security is also really high. So we try to tailor our offer both in our marketing and actually negotiating contracts right now. Right. Do you want to give an example of a deal that you typically do? Yeah, a deal we typically do, we negotiate net amount to the seller. We found that to be much more effective to talk about price. Initially, we already start with a good list. We try to whittle the seller's want, which is what they always say. So right out of the gate, well, what do you need? I need 50 grand. If all of us actually believe that, none of us would be in business. When the seller says that to your acquisition manager or you, that's you, they're actually stating a want. So we try to ask you know, more intelligent questions. The sales process for us is not talking a seller's ear off. It's asking questions. So we tailor our entire sales process by asking better questions to direct the conversation back to the answers that we want. Ultimately, we'll take the seller's want of wanting $50,000 and saying, okay, so tell me why you would like $50,000. We try to get behind the scenes. That same conversation, a typical example, realize they want a year of rent. They got some moving. They got a credit card. We added up. It's it's $34,000. So that allows us to go back in for the close. So we've established you need $34,000. So if I get you $34,000 in your pocket, we can close this deal, right? Yes. Perfect. Now you've taken $16,000 right off the top by not taking someone who says they need fifty but actually understanding what they need instead of what they want. That's very, very typical of our process, starting with a great lead and then asking questions to get the property. Not By the way, this has nothing to do with value. At $50,000, we may have already made 50 grand, but if they only need 34, our happiest people are the ones we give them exactly what they need. And we've made 50 grand, 100 grand on those deals, $20,000, and it's nothing to do with price. The problem is if you just have a set max acceptable offer, 
you're always going to go in it, whether it's 70 or 65 or 60, and you're never going to get those really good deals because you just work off a formula. Now, on top of that, if you talk to people in numbers, you're just talking to the logical side of their brain. We try to ask questions to connect with the emotional side of the brain because we recognize we're dealing with sellers and it's a sales process. It's very rare we mention price. We just try to figure out what the seller needs. Then we back into questions, well, how much do you owe? And all these other questions. We try to net it out about what they'll get instead of just competing on a sales price. And also when they say, well, I've got another offer. Okay, when are they going to close? Do they have proof of funds? You know, are they assigning the contract? We try to poke holes in other people's contracts. We've got a pretty good tool in our tool belt because we can close on this. And we also remind them of the horror stories where they've gone under contract with our competition and end up coming back to us. So we try to describe the features of our offer, the advantages over our competition. And ultimately, if you talk about FOB, which is considered a very, very basic selling technique, which is features, advantages, and benefits, the last thing we round out, what's in it for them? Everybody wants to know what the benefits are. So we try to really drive home the benefits. Ultimately, for a seller to sell you the home, you've got to describe the benefits. So let's just say you've got benefits and fear, right? You've got to tip the scale where your benefits outweigh their fear. So your goals lower their FOMO. So their fear of missing out on either A, holding on to the home or B, selling to someone else and raise the value of your benefits. As soon as you tip the scale where benefits outweigh FOMO, they'll sell you the deal every time. Nice. It's a sales process. Now, if you're buying from an auction, it's numbers. You're buying from a bank that where all offers are considered the same, it's a numbers game. But if you're dealing with the seller, it's that equation I just described. That's great. How many people do you have on your sales team and how long have you trained them for? It's a good question. So I've got multiple platforms. So that's the way I describe them. I've got an auction platform. I've got an in-state platform. I've got a seller direct platform. Seller direct, we take in about a thousand leads a week. Our goal is to close four to five contracts ultimately out of that. And myself, my partner, we have a team of six VAs and we have one closer, believe it or not, because we try to stop all of the non-deals from getting our closer unless they're ready to get closed. So our openers actually spend the entire time building rapport. They go beyond opening a conversation. They do all of the heavy lifting for my closer. So when my closer comes in, that's all he does is close. And as soon as he's closed the deal, he never sees it again because now it goes into processing. He never sees that deal ever again until he gets his check. Wow, that's awesome. So I see here that you also have seven steps to create long-term wealth in real estate. Do you want to go over those steps? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it starts with a foundation, which is a mindset. And essentially, that's the first most important thing. Now, the steps don't apply to all people because for some people, you got to find deals. And then for other people, you got to figure out the deal. So it really depends on what your exit is. Now, I've talked about flipping. I've talked about, you know, finding tenants and then ultimately flipping the property. But the journey for a wholesaler is really simple. You get your mind right. You figure out where you want to go. Then it's just about finding deals, figuring them and flipping them. So you actually only have four steps in that case. And so the fixing the deal and renting the deal don't apply to a lot of people. So that's for a wholesaler. It's basically four steps. Where do I want to go? That's a mindset. You want to think big, you execute big. You think small, you execute small. Then on top of that, okay, well, where do I find the deals? Figure it. How do I analyze them? And then the next step, you go straight to flipping it. So I like wholesaling because it's simplistic. It's the right thing to do today because it mitigates risk. So for most people, it's four steps. But it does start with the mind because if you just go straight into figuring and you've got no roadmap of where you want to go, you can do all the right things in a day, but you've got no destination. How do you measure success without a goal? 
success is different for you than it is for me. So you've got to really, when you focus on a mindset, not only of being successful, a winning mindset, you know, ignoring negativity, being laser focused on what you do, you've got to put in a numerical goal. If I say to you, I want to be rich, that's a dream. If I say I'd like to create $2 million net worth for myself next year, and I want a million of that to be in direct income, now I have a goal, right? And even a goal doesn't have to be one thing. It could be multiple things. So there's a big difference. I want to flip lots of houses. That's a dream. We'd like to buy and sell 20 properties per month. Now it's a goal. There's a big, big difference between goals and dreams. A lot of times, you know, people just talk about general statements. I want to own a lot of rentals. What, what does a lot of rentals mean? I want to know how many rentals, what kind of equity, what kind of net worth, because that's where you can, you can actually put numbers. How do you define net worth? Okay, market value today minus leverage. That's my equity. Equity times equity in each house. Now it's my total equity. So you've put a formula. Beyond that, you've put an empirical way of measuring it instead of just having some ambiguous, nebulous goal. Yeah, nice. And I know you're interested in many different ventures, and one of them is cannabis. This is a real estate investing podcast, but I am interested in learning more about different businesses, and I know nothing about that industry. So how did you get into it, and like, what are the differences between that industry versus real estate? I get into it because I figured six years ago it was going to be the next big thing based on what I saw in Florida. And we, just like every other industry, had to chase the money, how to figure out what side of the trade. We realized that the money was moving away from growing. The money is moving away from retail because now deliveries and all the other forms of getting a product, which means these fancy bills on a retail, you spend a million dollars on location, you may have to shut it down. And then that's the sunk cost. And growing the price per pound is coming down in most legal states which means we have to identify where the money is. And we found the processing and having access to the right product license is where the real money is. So we focus on acquiring the best technology, getting the right exclusive licenses, and now we can produce a product, have good margins, and have a lot less risk. My, my risk of buying flour or buying distillate from a grower or a processor is a lot less than the grower with a 100,000 square foot indoor grow, right? If you think about the risk profile, my footprint is 5,000 square foot. Their footprint is 100,000 square foot. So my real estate risk is less. My growing risk is less. I don't have a growing risk. I can ride the price down. The growers spend X amount on their build out, and now they have to sell progressively lower per pound. The retailer has, they spend a million dollars. Less people are going retail. More people want delivery. So their revenue per customer is less. Their competition opens up across the street and does a $2 million build. So now their million-dollar bill needs to be upgraded. So now you're chasing your competition to have the new experience, right? Because retail, by nature, the only reason you attract the customer into your physical location is by creating experience. That's the only reason why I'm going to get up off my seat. I'm going to leave and go somewhere. Because otherwise, I'm going to click, 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 click on Amazon, click delivery, click Uber Eats, click whatever I need to do to have it come to me if it's just a product, which means retailers are having to raise the bar to increase that experience. So we just looked at all those factors and said, we want to sit right in the middle. We want to sit right in the middle of growers who are going to give us better prices. And we want to sit in the middle of retailers who have to sell one unit at a time. Where we can sell a pallet load at one time. Yeah. Do you have any issues with financing specifically because this is, I think, federally still illegal? Absolutely. It's got to be private capital. Got it. Yeah. I know a lot of uh, real estate investors have called me because I work for a hard money lending company and they've asked to purchase commercial real estate, but the intent is to use it as something related to the cannabis industry. And then unfortunately we do have to deny them because 
we're not allowed to do it because we sell the loans to an institution or whatever. So yep. yeah, I don't know. So I guess you have to find like a private individual who is willing to back you for this venture. There's lots of private capital, by the way. A lot of it's come out of the pharmaceutical industry that are not publicly traded companies that have raised large amount of capital. Now you go to Canada, you can get a huge amount of public capital. Canada is highly interested in the cannabis space. So you just literally have to go across the border. It goes from being federally illegal to if you've got a great idea in cannabis, they'll stroke you all the money you want. Wow. Interesting. Canadians have a great interest that typically, if you go back historically, they look for emerging industries and cannabis would be considered that with a huge upside, you know, oil and gas, you know, exploration industries like that have been always been highly attractive to Canadian investors because, you know, that's something that they know and have a track record with. But the problem with a lot of companies is they raise too much money on the expectation of revenue. And now the revenue is coming through, which is not commensurate with the amount of money they raised. They've blown through the money on who knows what. And now, you know, that's why you see the valuations and publicly traded companies on the Canadian stock exchange being revalued at a much lower value than what they raise capital on. How has the COVID-19 crisis impacted your real estate business? And maybe you can talk about how it's impacted the cannabis business, because I've heard that cannabis is actually doing pretty well now. Cannabis find people at home. Yeah. So everybody, that business is doing great. Real estate in certain markets where the restrictions are heavier has definitely affected us tremendously. The wholesale market has created better buying opportunities to buy stuff much lower, even building in a market risk. We're seeing margins go up. Uh, real estate education, it crushed that business for a month. We had to pivot to virtual education overnight. And now we're about 70% recovered. We were down about 70, 80% a month ago. Wow. Yeah, because I know here in the Bay Area, we're not allowed to do any construction work unless it's like, you know, hazardous to live in a building, right? So pretty much all of our projects are at a halt. You, you can't do anything. If you have a new construction building, it's like, sorry, you can't start it. I agree. I think that a very intelligent approach right now in a market like that is how can I get this off my books quickly? Can I sell it and make a profit today? But trying to mitigate risk, getting rid of long-term projects as fast as possible was a great way to rip off the Band-Aid. Because as you shorten your horizon of real estate, when there's an imminent price drop, you've actually limited your risk. So the shorter the project, the less the risk. Yeah. What are your thoughts about the future of real estate in the next two or three years? It's going to be a grind down over the next two or three years. It's going to be a buyer's market. There's going to be tremendous opportunity in the market. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So hopefully uh, people should keep their powder dry. And like you were saying earlier, try to find capital so that when the prices do go down, you're able to execute and buy something on the cheap. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen all my mentors double, triple, and quadruple their net worth in the last 10, 12 years because they bought low and they sold high. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Do you have any last tips for our listeners before we end our show today? Look at the market. See where the opportunity is and chase the opportunity. Don't fall in love with your business model if it's the complete opposite to the market and where the opportunity is. A lot of people make mistakes because they love their business more than the market. And the real estate market is a multi-trillion dollar business that will just steamroll you, just gobble you up. It's like a tidal wave. It'll just knock you over. There's no single investor or group of investors that can fight the market. So our job is to be market driven. Look at the market. Look at the data. Really try to figure out what the opportunity is. Try to get ahead of your competition. Don't do what everybody else is doing. Do what everybody else is not doing. And that's where the real money's made. As your competition catches up, the masses of asses come in behind you, the dumb money. You already moved on to the next thing. You let them just finish out that opportunity on low margin. So it's always a market-driven approach. And that's how you're going to stay smart. That's how you're going to stay nimble. 
that's how you're going to make a tremendous amount of money by staying ahead of your competition. Awesome. So Lee, thank you so much for being on the show today. How can people get in contact with you? Sure. Yeah. If you want to learn more about our educational platform, it's realadvisors.com. That's realadvisors.com. If you want to connect with me on social media, Real Lee Carney on IG is a good place to see me. I've got a lot of free tips on there. Try to post a lot of content, you know, teach people on things that actually work in today's market and how to run a real estate business instead of being a real estate investor. Perfect. All right, Lee. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Focus on getting deals. Your goal as a wholesaler or flipper should be to get deals. So make it a goal to get one deal a day. If you can't get in one day, then work harder the next day and get two deals. You need to create systems in your business in order to scale. And that means that you need to get rid of any non-dollar producing tasks. So outsource as much of them as possible to free up your time. And you also need to be very selective with your leads. It's better to pursue a quality lead that has a great chance of closing versus pursuing thousands of uninterested sellers. Your time and efforts are your most precious assets, so don't waste them. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.